0: Hey, good evening, everybody. Give me, a, give me a tick. Don't make it weird, either. I'm just putting on my... You're making it weird. weird right? Yeah, it definitely got weird. But I didn't do that. That's on you, not me. It's a house of grace here, right? Okay, good start, Matt. Wow. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the table. Uh, my name is Matt Moberg. Thrilled that you are with us tonight. This is week three in our four-week series that we are titling Three and a Half Minutes, Ten Bullets. Uh, based upon the 2012 story tragedy of Jordan Davis who was killed in Florida. Uh, we are taking the documentary by that name and we're going through some of the themes inside of it to talk about the very real and pressing issues of racism that we are dealing with as a country, as a society, and most importantly for us here as a city. I, I want to remind us of that really quick before we get any further, is that this is a very real thing for us. Despite the myths of uh, meritocracy and the myths of post-racial, colorblind societies, all these different things that we'd like to tell ourselves, there are disparities that we can actually measure across every major measure that you could do, right? And especially here in Minnesota, this is our truth. Whether we're talking about housing or education attainment, poverty rates, um, income, all these different things, there are the, some of the largest disparities are happening right here in our backyard, and so uh, Well, I guess I'm just trying to start with this reminder of the very bad news, because you are a people who are called to bring good news. And any kind of good news that sidesteps some of the worst bad news in your midst, that's just not very good at all. And so good news has teeth. When you tell truth in a society that prefers illusions, it's going to bite a little bit. And so we need to go into this work, this strain, the sweat, the toil, the things that we're taking on in this. And tonight, uh, we're going to do so. By going to a text in Matthew 7. If you have your Bibles, Matthew 7, 1 through 5, it will be our next stop in this this series. This text is coming at the end of Jesus' climactic sermon on the mount, uh, where he is standing high on the mountain. And coincidentally, I've actually heard many other people cite this text who are also, well, you could say they're high, but maybe not necessarily on a mountain. This is kind of a go-to if this thing will work right here. You'll understand what I'm saying. Did it work? Is that the text up there? Okay. I I always found it interesting. This was every pothead's favorite verse right here. Do not judge. Don't judge my journey. You don't know me like back. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at that speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to that plank sticking out of your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all of the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, we've all heard this text uh, a time or two now. For most of my life, when I've read a text like this, I've heard it as that consistent and good and important reminder, don't judge, right? Do not judge. uh, Do not cast shade on others. Because first and foremost, as Jesus says, there's a boomerang effect here. If you're nasty and you're judging other people and you're casting shade out there, at some point, it's going to make a U-turn and come back to you. Okay, so be mindful of that. Do not judge. Sit down and be humble, said Sir Kendrick. Because your viewpoint, as we said last week, is merely just a view from a point. That is a great interpretation of this text. That is a takeaway point that we all ought to write down and hold on to. And yet I would argue that this text is also saying a little bit more. Just look at it for a second. Jesus says to a crowd of people that, uh, listen, before you get all hot and bothered about that speck of sawdust that you see in your neighbor's eye across the street, Has nobody told you that you have a two-by-four sticking out of your head? Has nobody pointed it out to you that there is a plank in your eye? Just hold that image. It's it's ridiculous. It's absurd, right? What is Jesus getting after here? Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but if if you have a two-by-four that is stuck all up in your eye, how well can you actually see? How well can you see if there is a two-by-four in your eye? Not well, thank you. You can't see well. Jesus is saying that there's a two by four in your eye. You are visually impaired. You cannot see the hand in front of your face, and yet you are acting, you are performing as if you can see a speck in your neighbor's eye. Jesus is saying you are blind, but he is not critiquing them. He's not condemning them for their diagnosis of blindness. He's condemning and critiquing them for their denial of their blindness. Despite the fact that they have a plank in their eye, they are performing, they are pretending, they are acting as if uh, they can see the speck in their neighbor's eye. Could that be talking about us? Is it... No, Sally's going, no. (laughs) Next. (laughs) Not an issue here. Move along, please. Is it possible that you can be blind and actually convinced that you can see with such a high level of clarity that you can notice a speck of sawdust in somebody else's eye? See, one of the key words that often gets skipped over when we read a text like this is Jesus' favorite insult, hypocrite. He uses it 17 times in the New Testament. 17 times. This is his go-to first-string insult. He's, everyone has a first-string insult. So you guys, get off your high horses. You're looking at me right now like you're better than me, but everybody has a first-string insult, and Jesus was hypocrite. Now, when we think of hypocrite, uh, we might have a different take on it than Jesus's. Our idea is like two-faced. You proclaim one thing, you practice something else entirely. And I wouldn't say that Jesus would stray too far from that definition right there. But I would say that when Jesus is using the word hypocrite at this time, he is using it in the actual language of Aramaic Greek, and it's rooted in the Greek theater, which is not what we think of right away. That word hypocrite is actually a person who puts on a mask and steps on the stage and goes to town, performs. So Jesus is saying, you actor, how could what he is saying about when he says you hypocrites speak into what he is saying and everything else? If this is such an absurd image, how does it somehow unravel, untangle, be unlocked to some degree by reading it as a bunch of actors that he is speaking to? Now I know you all know this but I'm qualified to speak of this because I've seen your face when you walked in here some of you knew you see me standing up in front and you go isn't that the guy who's from it's true I was the lead character in my fourth carried play King Hezekiah it's not a big deal did I turn some heads absolutely was it the talk of town yes maybe but it's not a big deal but I will tell you this from my experience on Broadway in fourth grade was one of the keys to being a good actor is you got to forfeit your own story for the sake of a script, right? This is when we were talking about the Academy Awards, and we are celebrating all these different actors doing different things. The people who are actually exceptional at the craft of acting are people who are so committed to their character that they completely are consumed by it. You can no longer separate who is the actor and who is the character. I actually read an article the other day about this. Daniel, is it Daniel Day-Lewis? Is that his name? Yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, last Mohicans when he was playing that role whatever that role was in there he he actually lived for six months in the woods where he taught himself how to build a canoe out of like whatever materials are I don't go out in the woods very often so I don't know what's out there trees straw what's out there what is in the woods (laughs) oh my gosh oh man I don't leave the wi-fi area too often but So committed to the role, so committed to the character that it completely consumes him. So committed to it that it's no longer just a script, it actually becomes his story. When Jesus is talking about blindness here, when he's speaking to a people who think that they can see very clearly the speck across the road and yet they have a two by four in their eyes. Is it possible that the only reason why they believe they can see that far down the road is because they have traded their sight for a script? That they are so in character that they have no idea how incongruent they are with reality at hand? Is it possible when Shakespeare says that all the world's a stage and all the men and women are merely players that he's actually telling the truth? Modern research today, when we look at the brain, it actually would suggest that this is so. Can somebody stand up for me? Steve, you have a baby. Sam, please come over here real quick. Let's just do, let's do a hands-on approach tonight. Sam, can you, uh, or can you tell everybody what your name is? I don't mean to get so intimate with you right now, but just come a little bit more so everybody can see you over here. What's your name? And tell us, tell us what your worst sin is. Uh, please. Please. <laughs> Please. Uh, My name is Sam Manning. Okay. And my worst sin is probably sloth. And have you apologized to the appropriate people for that sin? (laughs) Sorry, Jim. Sorry, (laughs) Jim. See, that's what we do. We heal people here. Just cleanse and plow. So, so Sam, question for you. You are a human being, correct? Yes. Okay, you have a brain? Yes. Where is your brain located? Okay, now tell me about your brain. What does it do and how important is your brain to your overall human experience from what you know? I know that you're in the, the field of law, and, and that's a little different than the medical field, but you're related to Annie, and, and she could probably fill you in. Um, um, and Jenny. And too. My wife is also Sorry, Jenny. A lot of apologies coming your way right now. Apologies uh, for that. Um, my brain uh, kind of interprets all of the different like perceptions that I have about the world and helps me understand myself, and like I guess along with my endocrine system. Oh, my God. Gosh. Okay. We're done here. Go ahead, Sam. Preach tonight. Holy Christmas. You want to take over now? Okay. So what you're saying though is that the brain is pretty, it is your central operating system, correct? Yes. It is how you feel, yes. how, you, how you live. And yet we cannot see your brain. So where is your brain right now? It's inside my head. So it's up in here somewhere. Yes. So there is no actual direct contract with your, between your brain and the outside world. No. Okay. This is basic one-on-one, isn't right. it? Yeah. But this is something, you can sit down. Thank you. We're going to get a lot of volunteers participating tonight. It's going to get weird real quick. But this is basic information that we often take for granted. The brain is the central operating system of the human body. It is how we, it is the, endo, the endocrine. Crin. I don't know what that means, but. The brain is how we function in this world, it's how we make decisions, it's how it's where our passions reside, it's where we experience pain, it's where we feel loss and love and everything in between, and yet it is operating and driving you forward with a blindfold on. It has no direct contact, it is locked up and lonely inside of your skull. Can't see the world, can't taste the world, can't feel the world, can't hear the world. You know this, I know this. But consider that for a moment. Because the experience that you have with the world and how you interpret it inside your brain is being sent and filled in by everything else in your body but your brain. So what modern cognitive scientists would tell you today is that uh, every second your body, from your toes to your hands to what you smell to what you see, your body is sending you 11 million bits of information per second. 11 million bits of information per second. So right now, as you are sitting here right now, per second, you are receiving into your brain 11 million bits per second. The brain receives that, then projects a movie, which is what we would call our consciousness, what we are aware to, aware of. Consider what that is saying about things. Every second, 11 million bits. That is beautiful. Your wiring. To be human is to be one of God's greatest creations. The complexity is inside of that. For everything in your body that is outside of the skull to actually be receiving this information, to be bringing it into your brain and then projecting an image that would give you a sense of awareness, that's pretty compelling. That's pretty amazing. It's also problematic, though. Because while you are receiving 11 million bits of information every second of your lived experience, you can only consciously comprehend 40 to 50 bits of information every second of your lived experience. You have an ocean of information coming into you, and yet you can only perceive a pond. Can you see how that would be problematic? And so what happens is that the brain, it cannot hold all 11 million bits of information, but it also cannot stand the fact that it can not hold 11 million bits of information. So instead of completely dismissing it, it receives the 11 million bits of information, and it creates a means of actually receiving the world around you through categorization, patterns, looking for relationships between information, associations, it makes the world simpler through how you see. What that means then is that what you are seeing is you are not seeing a full picture, but it's being filled in by what you have seen in the past. Did any of that just make sense? You understand I do not have my masters in the field of cognitive science, but this is so compelling and so important to what we are talking about that I want to make sure that I'm actually articulating this right. Does that make sense? Okay. So what we do when we experience these things, when we experience life at 11 million bits per second, is that we take that information, our experiences, and then they shape our expectations. And so recognizing that the brain does not have the capacity to actually parse out each one of the 11 million pieces of information, it looks for patterns, it looks for pairings, and then it's, it, it imposes that upon the world. So when I say thunder, you think lightning. When I say peanut butter, you think of jelly. When I say Jesus, you say Christ. Write me like, I feel like I'm doing a chant right now. <laughs> when I say Jesus, but you know what I'm Oh, yes, it's one of those nights. Okay. Consider that for a moment, though. So if all this information is being received on a, on a neutral level, we just, the, br- the brain is receiving all that information is being deemed as important, deemed as factual, and our expectations of the world around us are being shaped in that light, how might that speak into how we are actually seeing the world? Let me give you an example of how this works. Because with all that missing information, our brains actually tend to fill it in for us. So we, I want you to read these lines right here. Go ahead. It's a valid question, right? What are you reading there? How did you know to squeeze an H between the W and the A right there? How did you know to tag an E onto the A and the R? This is what I want you to understand. And this is actually very core to understanding. Any kind of work that we're gonna take seriously when we're talking about racial justice in particular is the only reason you put an H between the W and the A is because somewhere in your past, you found it helpful to do so. At some point in your past, you realized that an E after the A and the R would be the most comprehensive thing. So you didn't need to pause and size up your different options. You just assumed that it would go right there. And so you filled in the picture, even if it didn't ask you to do so in the first place. Let me give you another example. I will give you $20 and a trendy table t-shirt, top of the line, always trending on Twitter. I mean, people talk about these shirts all over town. I would get it, if you can interpret for me what this next sound is, okay? Anybody, go ahead. Whatever, what's that? Motorcycle story? Um, No, not a motorcycle story. Uh, Not that either. (laughs) Nope, (laughs) No. Any other guesses? So I went up to my wife, recorder in hand, and I said, honey what would be one thing that you would want the people of the table to know that they just refuse to believe? Like, what is something really important to you? And this is what she said. My husband is so much more attractive than you. Her words, not mine. Her words, not mine. Now, you just heard her truth and her words, and she put that out there, okay? You know what she just said. Now, listen to that noise again. (laughs) <laughs> what happened there say something you can piece it out now right less of a motorcycle starting or a motorcycle story for that matter it's less of that and so what's happening is that because of our prior experience it fills in it clarifies it speaks into our present experience So what cognitive scientists are now revealing, which should shake up everything that we know about how we understand each other relationally, how we understand ourselves, how we understand the decisions that we make, is that we see the world as much based upon how we have seen the world in the past as we are actually seeing the world in the present. Does that make sense? How might this speak into how we understand racial dynamics of our lives today? If we're basing how we see based upon what we have seen, how is this shaping us? I want to read you some of these stats because it only gets more complicated and a little bit more intense when we consider that the information that we are receiving is only escalating and not de-escalating. In 2011, this is what information scientists have have, uh, dialed up. Americans took in five times as much information as they did in 1986, which is the equivalent of... 174 newspapers every day. When we're not at work, so when we're not at the office, when we're at home, each of us processes 34 gigabytes, or about 100,000 words, every day. The world's 21,274 television stations produce 85,000 hours of original programming every day, with the average American watching five hours of TV every day. And that's not even counting YouTube, which uploads around 6,000 hours of new content every hour. We are being constantly bombarded by information. The ocean is only growing wider, not smaller, and yet you and your brain can only still comprehend and perceive the pond. And so the more that things are missing, the more we have things that are filling it in. And so when you think about how it is shaping us today and how it is shaping... Uh, how we understand race and differences and how we actually engage with the other, consider some of the things that were less spoken and more implicitly embedded inside some of the 11 million pieces of information that you have received in the past, the seconds that you've drank in deep. How has our understanding of power and leadership been influenced by the fact that every one of our presidents up until 2008 has been a white man? How has our understanding of charisma and joy and humor been influenced by The fact that the people who tell us jokes at night are almost all white men. How is our understanding of sincerity and trust and those that we can go to for the right answers informed by the fact that the majority of news anchors are white men? How is our understanding of spiritual leadership and wisdom and biblical understanding shaped by the fact that if you are part of this church you're hearing mainly from two white people. How has your understanding of God been shaped by the fact that you have grown up and most likely the number one image that you've held of God has been God as a white man, despite the fact that he was a brown Palestinian? How are these things shaping our environment, shaping our consciousness? The pond that we perceive, how is it being colored by the 11 million bits of information in the ocean that are filling in the missing pieces? Dr. Robin D'Angelo, she frames racial, racism like this Racism is less about anything that I have done to perpetuate racism, and more about how racism has shaped my consciousness and identity, and how it, how it has granted me unearned yet powerful advantages that result in disadvantages for people of color. See this is the point where we usually have these conversations about race where we, and by we I I do mean uh, white people in particular, we tend to either feel guilty or shamed or frustrated or angry or this sense of defensiveness, like what do you want me to do about it? Was born this way, had no say in that? I get it. It's not your fault. I want to be very clear about that because this is usually a stumbling block in our ability to have healthy dialogues around these things. There is a profound difference between fault and responsibility. This is the example I would give. If it is the late at night and you hear a cry outside, and you go outside and you see a baby that's been left by the side of the road, that is not your fault. But it is your responsibility to do something about it. If we live in a society that has shaped for us to see whiteness as superior and whiteness as central, what is your responsibility in actually dismantling that and trying to go a different way? And what level of humility are you willing to enter into it, understanding then what we see isn't actually what we are seeing? That there very well may be a plank in your eye, even if you are convinced that you can see somebody's speck across the road. And what do we do about it next? Jesus, he gives the line, you hypocrites, first take the plank out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. How do you take a plank out of your eye? What's brilliant about Jesus' language here is this word for plank is not just a twig on the side of the road. It's not just a random piece of firewood that you keep in your garage. The word for plank that he's using here is actually the main beam that supports a house. I don't build houses, don't know any other name but the main beam. You know what I'm talking about? The load-bearing wall. Lauren, that's what you said today? Load-bearing wall, It's a word, term, phrase? Okay, great, super. So if you pull out the plank, the load-bearing wall, the house falls down. What Jesus is saying is that it's it's that severe. If you're actually going to take this work seriously, if you're going to actually have some epistemological modesty and humility, if you're actually going to take your own self and mind and ability to see faithfully, then you got to take the whole house down. Where do you begin? You lay your hand on the plank itself. So one of the things we've been doing on Tuesday nights uh, is we've been talking about implicit bias. We've been talking about the complexities of identity and how we engage with others, how the world has shaped us, socialized us, all these other pieces. And one of the ways that we have identified our own sense of bias and the baggage that we carry, in the logs that we look at life through, is through the test known as the implicit association test put out by Yale years ago. Over 16 million people have taken. A lot of critics about this test, and rightfully so. I mean, trying to gauge somebody's implicit bias is no small feat. You can't do that quantifiably. You can do it qualitatively. And so this so far is our best tool at hand. And what it has discovered is it looks at, on a spectrum of uh, trying to figure out if you have bias or preference for white people or people of color, and, or if you don't at all. And the scale is no preference, mild preference. Is that it? Strong. That's what it is. No, no. It's no preference, slight preference, moderate preference, strong preference. The bulk of Americans uh, register as moderate preference for people who are white. Over 60 million tests, that's what they are finding. Now when I went into the test, I like to think that I have been engaged in this conversation for numbers of years now. I went in riding a high horse thinking that I would come out pretty, pretty good. And I was actually really excited to share it on Tuesday night. You can imagine the existential crisis I had when it said that I don't have a moderate preference for white people, I have a strong preference for white people. That's what my test said. So I have the decision that I have to make right there. I can either get prideful and say this test is crap, I'm going to dismiss it completely, or I can recognize that there are some planks that I have to lay my hands on. And in that process of doing that, next thing I did was I actually went through like childhood photos. I started to do some like biographical work of understanding how have I been shaped to see what I see and what can I do next about it. The first step, though, is actually doing a self-audit and having the humility to say that you do not see the way that we need to see. And the beautiful thing is when we are actually capable of working on our own biases and prejudices, of course the speck will be gone. You take the log out, of course the speck will be gone. Think it, look at how brilliant Jesus is here. That speck of sawdust, where do you think that came from? The log in your eye. So if you can work on yourself, if you can do the necessary healthy human work of doing an audit and understanding the things that are, that are making you prejudiced, making you see distorted views of reality and distorted views of those who are different than you, then you will stop running in to help with the plank in your eye and leaving them bruised and battered with sawdust all over them. There are better ways to be healers. The beginning of all kind of racial justice, the beginning of actually trying to dismantle these systems is not going and uh, marching. It is not uh, shouting out loud about the clan. It is not about the things that we tend to think it's about. It is actually about being honest enough to see yourself as you are to recognize that you don't have the whole story. To ask, have I been a performer on this stage, pretending to see a speck, when all along there have been logs clogging up my eyes. There's a difference between fault and responsibility. If we're going to take seriously the bad news around us by being good news, by bringing good news, then we have to take responsibility. Healthy spirituality begins with being honest. Will you pray with me? Jesus, God, we do not see the world as we need to see the world. Uh, We acknowledge that there are planks, that there are logs in our eyes that keep us from seeing our brothers and sisters the way that we need to. And God, we recognize that we can't move forward, we cannot become more just, we cannot be a community of healers until we actually do some healing ourselves, and until we actually get honest, and we humble ourselves, God, or forgive us for our arrogance, God. Forgive us, Lord. In Christ's name, we all pray together, amen.